It is time for another episode of A Call Away. Adam Giardino with you, and yeah, you betcha, it's time for another week in review look at Scranton Wilkesbury Rail Riders Baseball. I'm the radio broadcaster for Scranton Wilkesbury, AAA affiliate of the New York Yankees. And as the New York Yankees continue their playoff push, so do the Rail Riders here in AAA. A couple of weeks back, it looked a little more comfortable with a six game lead and Well, that's just not the case anymore. The Rail Riders have hit the skids. And as we record this, Granton Wilkes-Barre with a one-game lead in the division. The lead had been as many as eight games up. And now it's one game up with just under two weeks to go down the home stretch. So plenty of excitement as the Rail Riders, the Buffalo Bisons, the Rochester Red Wings, and the Syracuse Mets all battling for the one playoff spot coming out of the IL North. On this episode, we will get you a recap of last week. It was a tough week. Rail Riders went 1-5, and five, but a few highlights sprinkled in. We'll have a conversation with a couple of fun guests. One is Nick Nelson. He's one of the top 15 prospects in the Yankees system. He's a 23-year-old who throws 95 miles an hour. You look at him on the mound, and you just don't expect 95 miles an hour will be pumping out there, but at 6'1", 195 pounds, Nelson sure can bring it. A starting pitcher who's made a couple of appearances for the Rail Riders to begin his AAA career. And then we'll have conversations with a couple of, let's say, non-players. Well, one of them sure was. He won multiple World Series titles with the New York Yankees. Yankee fans everywhere absolutely adore this former outfielder. Bernie Williams was down in Charlotte raising awareness for a cause very near and dear to his heart. He performed the national anthem before the Rail Riders series opener there last Tuesday. And so we had a pretty good sit down with Bernie talking about what 2019 looks like for him and what he remembers from his time in the minor leagues. And then we have a special guest as well from a few weeks back when the Rail Riders were out in Columbus, Ohio. That is the city that was home for the Rail Riders AAA affiliate for decades. Nearly 30 years worth of Yankees AAA baseball was out in Columbus, Ohio. And one of the men who was around for almost all of that, the current team historian for the Columbus Clippers, Joe Santry. He was part of the communications department back in the 90s and 2000s, back in the 80s. He's been around the organization forever. And Joe has a steel trap memory and recalls Plenty of good stories involving a lot of New York Yankee names you would certainly recognize. Plenty of good core four stories in there as well. And then we wrap things up just as we always do with our minor league reports from around the system. Single A Charleston, High A Tampa, and Double A Trenton. And then, of course, mixed in earlier in the podcast, Adam Marco, the broadcaster for Scranton Wilkesbury, joins us for some broadcast banter as we chat about some of the new arms that we're getting to see here in AAA this season. Without further ado, we've got some highlights for you. I mentioned that it was a 1-5 in five week for the Rail Riders as they hit the road down to Charlotte, North Carolina, and Gwinnett, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. And the highlights were well, few and far between. The trip began on Tuesday down in Charlotte. It's an absolute gem of a ballpark. And the Rail Riders, well, they lost 15-1. So we'll gloss over that one, and we'll jump into Wednesday's game, which was, frankly, one of the more exciting games of the season. And... We can jump all the way into the seventh inning where the Rail Riders trailed 8-4, but Scranton Wilkes-Barre's bats came alive for their largest inning of the season. And Francisco Arcia began the inning with a double before Trey Ambergie came up. Again, the Rail Riders trailing at this point 8-4. Nothing at one. The pitch, a swing and a fly ball hit well out to left field. This one's carrying well at the track. It's gone. Trey Ambergie leaves the yard and... 
In doing so, cuts the deficit in half. The Rail Riders trail 8-6 in the top of the seven. So that gave the Rail Riders some life. And in fact, after that, there was a walk, a single, a walk, a walk and a walk. And a couple more runs came home. The game was tied at eight. There was one out in the inning. And with hard-throwing Chiago Vieta out there on the mound for Charlotte, he'd been pumping it in there at 101, 102 miles an hour. Ryan McBroom stepped to the bat with very little fear in his eyes. Nothing at one pitch. Swing and a line drive poked up the middle for a base hit. One runs home, that's Valera. Wade gets waved home. The throw goes in behind Kyle Higashioka and gets away as Higgy goes first to third. The Rail Riders have a lead. They've scored six times here in the seventh. They're up 10-8 and runners are at the corners with still one down. That made it a six-run inning. The Rail Riders added two more runs. It was an eight-run frame. And again, the largest inning of the season, game 121 for the Rail Riders. They sent 13 men to the plate and scored eight times, turning a four-run deficit into a four-run lead. But 12-8, it just wasn't enough as Charlotte scored twice in the eighth, twice in the bottom of the ninth, and then scored a walk-off run in the bottom of the 10th inning on a Charlie Tilson single out to left field. So the Rail Riders with a tough one there, and they tried to avoid the sweep the very next day, but couldn't as Charlotte won 7-5. So the team goes down to Gwinnett, Georgia, and the opener on Friday night, they lost that one as well. It was 5-2, and they had lost the first four games on the road trip. They had lost five games overall, dating back to the end of the homestand. And on Saturday, the Rail Riders, again, looked like they had a victory before them. They had a 4-4 game, tied in the 7th, in the 8th and the ninth, still tied, so we go to extras, and the Rail Riders scored a run in the top of the 10th. Gwinnett responds with a run of its own. We go to the 11th, the first time this year that the Rail Riders had played onto the 11th, and with a runner aboard and one out, 20 home runs on the season, not quite enough for Ryan McBroom. And the pitch to McBroom, he swings and crushes one in the air to left field. It's gone! And in the top of the 11th, Ryan McBroom has put the Rail Riders on top. It is 7-5, Scranton Wilkesbury down here in Georgia. Number 21 of the year gave the Rail Riders a 7-5 advantage, but Gwinnett scored three times in the bottom of the 11th inning, and they walked off 8-7 against the Rail Riders, who frankly felt snake-bitten with five straight losses on the road trip. They looked to avoid getting swept for the entire series, and the next day they were able to manage that. It was 2-2 in the second inning and seemed to be a back-and-forth affair developing on our hands when Kyle Higashioka stepped up in the top of the third, and little did we know at the time he would put Scranton Wilkesbury ahead for good. 2-2 to Alvarez, swing and a line drive, slashed out to right center field. This one heads back at the wall. It's off the wall on the fly. The wave home for the first runner. The second gets waved as well. Here's the throw, not in time. Goes Kay Kato, scores right behind Ryan McBroom. And the Rail Riders have opened up a 9-3 lead in the top of the ninth inning. That home run made it 3-2. The Rail Riders added four runs in the seventh, two in the ninth. They came away with a 9-3 victory, salvaging at least one win on the six-game road trip. So the Rail Riders, after that week of play, one game up in the division, but plenty of work to do with the final two weeks still ahead of them here in 2019. One of the players that made his debut for the Rail Riders last week, Nick Nelson. Right-hander, throws hard. We talked about him earlier on in this podcast. 
and we would have a chance to sit down and chat with Nick. And where we begin with Nick is the option that he had coming out of high school down in Panama City, Florida. He was drafted in the 31st round by the San Francisco Giants, but he also had a commitment to go play college ball at Gulf Coast College, ultimately wanting to play baseball for the Florida Gators. So for Nick, he takes us back to that time and that decision where he ultimately chose to go to college. Well, you know, um, being drafted out of high school, you know, it was cool and whatnot. Um, but it was later on, and, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like I wasn't quite ready to go into Pro Bowl at that time. So um, I feel like, you know, uh, going to Gulf Coast was a better uh, idea than, you know, going into Pro Bowl, you know, being 18 and whatnot. And so, yeah, I just thought it was a better, better idea to go. When you went to Gulf Coast College, you were a two-way player. So uh, what was it like in college ball getting to do both pitch and play some first base? It, it, it was awesome, you know. Um, on the days that I would pitch, uh, I would DH for myself. And, you know, other than that, I would be at first base or I'd, you know, get a DH spot or something like that. So, yeah, it was fun. I had a blast doing it all. Was that making the decision harder when University of Florida was coming around after your second year at Panama City College, then you get drafted by the Yankees and needing to make that decision all over again? Yeah, that, that was a hard decision, you know, because I grew up a Gator fan, so mm-hmm. University of Florida was always my dream school and with the baseball program they have over there with Coach Sullivan and whatnot. So it was definitely a hard decision, but I didn't know uh, if I had another opportunity to go in the fourth round. Plus, it with being the Yankees, you know, with everything they had they have going on. So, yeah, it was, it was a hard decision, but pretty sure I made the right one. What if Nick Nelson, the hitter, were to stand in the box against Nick Nelson, the pitcher, today? How, how would that go for you? Um... <laughs> As a hitter, I'd probably be scared. Um, you know, just just know what goes through my mind out there on the mound. Um, it would be a fight, though. It would. Nick Nelson, starting pitcher for the Rail Riders, our guest here on the pregame show. Now, the year began for you with Double A Trenton, and and take us through all of those starts where where you were getting your feet underneath you to begin 2019. So my first couple didn't really go as you know I had planned, um, and then I you know unfortunately went down with a shoulder injury you know uh, towards the beginning, but came back strong, and you know I just kept doing what I was doing, you know, going from last year into this year, and um, I worked on a couple of stuff when I was down there, you know, I added a slider into everything, um, still working on that, but um, going into 2019, I really didn't know what to expect, but I feel like I've, I'm right where I need to be, you know, I got my taste of uh, AAA so far, so I know what to expect going in for the rest of the season. When you were in Double A, you said you added the slider. Talking to Brady Lale, he talked about how Tim Norton, the pitching coach for the Trenton Thunder, did wonders for his slider. Is Norty a, a slider whisperer down there? Where, where's this coming from? Yeah, I guess so. You know, he he helped me out tremendously with it. We worked on it day in and day out, whether you know I had a bullpen or just throwing it in the flat ground or you know just playing catch with it. So, yeah, he he helped me out a lot with it. Nick Nelson, our guest here on the pregame show. You mentioned that first start here in AAA. I'm sure it's something that a lot of pitchers are thinking about as they make their first appearance in AAA as the new baseball. You guys hear about it in AA. You know the numbers, all of that. But physically, what does the baseball feel like having thrown 100 innings this year, specifically with the old ball, and now coming up and needing to manipulate the new baseball? When you sit there and think about it, you know, you're, you're looking at the ball and whatnot, and you think it's going to be a big difference. But, I mean, it wasn't – they're a little bit slicker, you know. So um, that was, that was a, a, you know, main thing in the first inning. Um, other than that, there's really not that big of a difference. You know, out there when you're on the mound, you're not really thinking about, you know, um, 
you know how the ball feels and whatnot you're going out there and trying to compete so um but yeah I don't think there's that big of a difference you know and after that first start in AAA, what was the takeaway? What are you thinking you're looking to do going into start number two? Hopefully not give up two home runs. But um, <laughs> um, definitely trying to do better than I did last time. You know, I, I know that I can't really miss a spot because, you know, they uh, capitalize on that. So, yeah, I just got to go in there, stay in my lanes, and, you know, hit my spots and fill up the zone. Back inside a call away, and after a week away, we welcome the voice of the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders, Adam Marco, back into the podcast. How'd you spend your week? Uh, relaxing, refreshing, playing a little golf that was not relaxing nor refreshing. <laughs> spent a little bit of time at PNC Field. Actually, spent a lot of time at PNC Field, but also got a little bit of respite and played 18 holes of Beth Page Black in a little under five hours and 45 minutes. <laughs> so when they're talking about changing the pace of play rules up at the PGA level, that trickles down to you as well? Well, I was trying to apply the baseball pace of play rules, so I was just dropping a ball for my second shot, middle of the fairway, every single hole, mostly because the drives were just going wide, right? Left, yeah, yeah. Out of play. They're foul balls, to use baseball parlance. It. It really did speed up the pace. I could have been a six-hour round otherwise. For the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders, as we record this, they are entering the home stretch of the season with under two weeks to go. The IL North, it's just getting tighter. And since the Rail Riders went on the road, came back, uh, that lead in the division has really shrunk, and it's a one-game lead right now over Syracuse, two over Buffalo, four over Rochester. Uh, how do you see this thing playing out in the final two weeks? I wish I had an answer. I wish I could tell you it was going to be a positive result for Scranton-Wilkes-Barre. They are perhaps now trending in the right direction. They're taking on Pawtucket for a couple of games over the final 12 of the season, and that's helpful. They've had a very good run against Pawtucket this year. By the time we see Lehigh Valley over the weekend, there's a fairly good chance that Lehigh will be on its last legs for playoff potential. Syracuse might be the team that scares me more now than Buffalo or Rochester, not just because they're one game back as we're talking, but they've won eight straight, and they've done everything right as the Rail Riders have done a lot of things wrong in the last two weeks, really, of baseball. We don't see Charlotte anymore. That's phenomenal, at least not until the postseason, perhaps. So I just hope that this club has enough. We've got enough pitching at this moment in time. I hope we have enough offense over the last week and a half of the season because that's what it's going to take to get past certainly Lehigh Valley. That's a team we know can hit. We'll, I think, have a fairly good shot of taking plenty of games in Pawtucket next week, and then maybe it comes down to the final day of the year against the Buffalo Bisons. At least we've got that final four series here at home, final four games of the season at home, a place where Scranton-Wilkes-Barre has been pretty much lights out this entire season yeah they've got the best record at home in the international league this year so that has certainly been a benefit to them not just recently but over the balance of the season you talk about the offense getting enough over the last couple of weeks and obviously Yankee fans are familiar with the situation with Luke Voigt going on the injured list he's now physically here in Scranton Wilkes-Barre we're unlikely to see him during this homestand against Pawtucket but when the team goes on the road to Lehigh Valley and then on the road to Pawtucket there's a very good chance that Voigt's in the lineup and playing some first base playing some DH and just getting back up to game speed um, how do you see that 
playing out and then the residual move we assume at this level would be the return of Mike Ford who should and is likely in the discussion as one of the guys to win the IL most valuable player award this year I read that Luke Voigt looks to be around for probably Friday through Wednesday of next week the Yankees have had a history of having a guy take the last day before he's set to return to travel back to New York. They're out on the West Coast, so it looks like Voigt could join them on the 30th. That's next Friday, so we could see him for three days in Lehigh Valley, three days up in Pawtucket, somewhere in the range of 25 to 30 at-bats, give or take a few here and there. I think it helps Scranton Wilkesbury, not just because of the caliber player that Luke Voigt has been this year, but Ryan McBroom has played a lot of first base lately with Ghost K. Coteau, or if needed, Eric Kratz serving as the backup. So Voigt can DH a couple of times. McBroom can play first base. You slot him in. It allows you to play Ghost K. Layton games at first base if Voigt's only going to go seven innings. Offensively, certainly it's a boon for Scranton Wilkes-Barre. You're going to get him probably second in the order, which is where we saw a lot of Mike Ford this season, where he excelled. You want to get him those at-bats. And I think that helps Scranton Wilkesbury, especially in a couple of tough series on the road at Lehigh Valley, especially. And then Mike Ford, you know, if Voigt goes back and is ready for the Yankees on August 30th, that's a Friday night. They'd option Mike Ford probably the 29th through the day of the 30th. That's been their kind of trend this season. I hope with that September 1st deadline just a few days away i would hope that mike would come back and play the weekend for the rail riders but he might also take that 72 hours to report and see if the yankees bring him back in september because that's another thing that makes sense to me if you're not sure about luke voigt on a daily basis yet with the sports hernia might still need surgery during the offseason then having mike ford there is the wise decision. As much as I would love him to be in a Rail Riders uniform for the postseason, I think it probably makes the most sense for New York to have him there, that they can spell Luke Voigt at any point in time and not have to worry about anything. Right, giving Voigt a lot more time off than what he normally would get just to keep him fresher for the Yankees postseason. And that's the most important thing. He said, I think it was one of the New York papers, that it would just absolutely kill him to not be a part of the Yankees postseason run so it looks like as long as there's not too much pain it looks like this is something he's just going to play his way through rest has been the key these last couple of weeks it will be the key in September to make sure that he is healthy and capable of playing as much as he possibly can and remember they went to the postseason last year with Didi Gregorius and he was a little dinged up and you didn't know what was going to happen and he tried to go at it you hope that you learn from that. You give more rest as needed. And Voight's bat is the biggest thing they probably need come postseason time. So the Rail Riders, as we take a look at what they're trying to do moving down the stretch here over the final two weeks of the season, they've added a couple of arms, a couple of starting pitchers, and one that we got to see very recently, just yesterday, was Nick Nelson in his first home start for Scranton Wilkesbury, And he had made a start on the road. He comes back home. And what were you able to take away from that performance last night against Pawtucket in which Nelson went six innings, seven hits, two earned runs, two walks, and six strikeouts. It was a really good outing for Nick Nelson. It's 
a Pawtucket team that has some power potential. They've got prospects in this lineup with C.J. Chatham and Bobby Dahlbeck, Josh Akami, guys that have some pop, have the ability to hit the ball around the ballpark. I think Cole Sturgeon's a pretty good hitter, and certainly Ruzne Castillo has proven to be one of the best offensive players in the International League the last couple of years. And Nick Nelson did a really nice job limiting what they did in that game. Fastball was topping 95, typically. There were a few pitches where you didn't know where it was going to end up. That is bound to happen from time to time. I think with a kid that's 23 years old, you still have the opportunity to hone in that control Mm -hmm. and you can see some teachable things while also getting his first AAA win. And another guy, the the last guy we'll ask you about is Nick Nelson's a top 15 prospect. This guy is not quite, but I think he's starting to open some eyes with how he's worked his way up the system. Brian Keller is a former 39th round pick by the New York Yankees out of University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. And normally when you draft a guy that low, it's just a sink or swim situation. So you get thrown into a level that they just have an opening and then they force you to play. And if you give up a bunch of runs, then you're done. You're a 39th round pick. And Keller has proven his mettle every step of the way to the point where he's now in AAA. And uh, he made a great start in his debut, got touched up on the road, now came back home and to open up this homestand, six shutout innings with eight strikeouts. So uh, again, what did you seem to take away from that performance Monday night. I do like the control that Keller has, and I think the Yankees... At first, I was a little skeptical about the move up for Keller. I know we needed starters here in Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, and the numbers were fine, good at times in his time with Trenton. He's had certainly a, a few notable appearances this season for the Trenton Thunder, and I think that while... I'm not sure he's a top-end starter in a Rail Riders postseason. Maybe by necessity he might be because of the shift of Chance Adams and Davey Garcia to the Rail Riders bullpen. I would be confident putting him out there. I'm not, I'm not ready to go commit to a must-win game, but if we're going to put him out there in like a game two of a postseason round, if that's what we have to do, I think I'd be content with it as long as we get – what we saw Monday versus what we got on the road. Well, remember, last year in the championship series, game four, win or go home, your season's over, and Ryan Bollinger came out and threw an absolute gem of a performance against Durham. So you never know who's going to step up during the playoffs. Never know. Adam Marco, voice of the Rail Riders, our guest here on Broadcast Banter. Thank you so much for the time. We'll do it again next week, the final full week of play in the 2019 season. Sounds fantastic. Coming up next on the podcast, we promised you a conversation with Bernie Williams earlier, and that's what we're going to bring you right now. Won multiple World Series title over a ton of years with the New York Yankees, came up through the system, and went on to be some of that homegrown talent that helped form the dynasty in the late 90s and early 2000s for New York. And fast forward almost two decades from that point, and where we begin in our conversation with Bernie Williams, who was in town in Charlotte when the Rail Riders were down there taking on the Charlotte Knights. Plain and simple, what does 2019 look like for Bernie Williams? 2019 has been a very, very productive year for me. We have a a whole bunch of things going post-baseball, even though I would never be able to uh, sort of detach myself from baseball experience 
I've been uh, doing, uh, actually utilizing baseball as a platform to have a lot of good messaging out there, some really good causes, and uh, you know, one of them is the reason why I'm here today. That reason is IPF. For people that are listening at home, explain what, what is it for those who don't know and what are you trying to do to remedy it? Okay, so IPF stands for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It's a terminal disease, usually between three to five years on average once you get diagnosed. My father died from IPF in 2001. So in lieu of that, I've been teaming up for the last three years with the Bear Ringer Engelheim, this pharmaceutical company out of Germany. And we have created this campaign called Breathless. And it's basically to raise awareness about IPF. We have about 132,000 people living with IPF in the United States. Currently, about 50,000 people get diagnosed every year from IPF. 40,000 people die every year from IPF. So the numbers are real. We're trying to create some awareness. And we have a website called breathlessipf.com geared to educate people about the disease where you can find commentary and uh, stories from patients that are currently suffering from the disease. You get physicians, lung specialists, and caretakers just to give more light to uh, this disease. Data has pointed out to the fact that the earlier you get diagnosed, there are options that you can have to manage and enhance the quality of your life while you have the disease. Even though we haven't found a cure yet, we're working towards that. But in the meantime, there's a lot of patients that may benefit from this information. That's why we're doing it you know, all over the country, and uh, it just, we just happen to be in North Carolina this time. Bernie Williams, former New York Yankee outfielder, is our guest here on the pregame show. And so we can't have you on the broadcast without asking you a little bit about some baseball stuff. And when you come back to a ballpark, I'm sure in your minor league days, you would have killed to play at a ballpark like BB&T Ballpark, some of the others that I'm sure you visited. But when you think back to your minor league days, what are some of the things that jump out to you that, that really resonate with your time riding buses from city to city? Well, that was definitely one of the things that resonates with me, <laughs> riding buses. In AAA, we were flying. I mean, even though the flying experience was a lot less appealing appealing than the, the major league experience, we fly at the, early in the morning and, uh, you know, we like fly the day after the games. It's, you know, it's actually very grueling. But I think the most important thing that I got from my minor league experience was the interaction with the fans. From rookie baseball all the way to AAA, the minor league seems to have this sort of more intimacy, intimate relationship with the players you know, rather than, you know, meeting them in the big leagues, you know, you have virtually no access to players in the big leagues, you know, whether it's security or, you know, whatever the case may be, the way that stadiums are constructed and and things like that. But in the minor leagues, especially in the lower classes, you have rookie ball, class A, double A, you create this relationship with fans that come there every day, every summer to watch the games. A lot of them invite you to their homes and we have cookouts and we have a lot of them help you with, you know, finding housing. Sometimes you even stay in their houses for a while. Uh, So you create this rapport with the fan base of the particular city that you're playing uh, that is really special and we still have friends you know up to this day from people that I met you know 30 years ago when I was 20 19 years old in, in my minor league days so to me that's the thing that, that resonates the most one final question here on the pregame show with Bernie Williams when we were in Columbus, one of our pregame guests was Joe Santry, who's a team historian. He was part of the communications department when you were there. He's been there for 30 years. And he said that even when you were there as a player, that occasionally post-game, 
they would have opportunities for bands to be out on the concourse. And he said that Bernie Williams would start grabbing his guitar, go up there post game, and and go up and jam a little bit. And, and Joe Santry tells some tales, so I just want to make sure that's a true story. Oh yeah, that is very true. And, and as a matter of fact, there is a there is a really really cool picture of me playing with the former San Diego Chicken. I don't know if that guy exists, to, uh, you know, still. But <laughs> he just happened to be at Columbus one time, and I am jamming with the with the Chicken right on on the on the middle of the infield, you know, in some band, you know, kind of stage kind of thing. But yeah, it is true. I started playing guitar at eight years old, around around the same time I started playing baseball, and I took my guitar everywhere in the minor leagues, you know, bus rides, plane rides, I have one in my locker, same thing I did in the major leagues, but everybody that knew me well knew that music was, is, and it has always been a very important part of my life. Back inside this week's episode of A Call Away. How great was that? A big thanks to Bernie Williams for being a guest on the podcast this week. And now we've got a couple of more things still to get to. Normally, this is where we get you your New York Yankees minor league reports from up and down the system. But instead, we'll throw in a bonus chat from not last week, but earlier on in the season. I've been hanging on to this. I've been wanting to get it in somewhere this year because it's really a fun conversation. I mentioned Joe Santry the historian for the Columbus Clippers. He's still part of the communications department there and has spent three decades worth of his life involved with Columbus Clippers baseball, who for three decades, just about, was the AAA affiliate for the New York Yankees. He has story upon story upon story. I sat down with him hoping to get five or six minutes. This is ultimately a best of cut out of 18 minutes worth of chatting with Joe Santry. This was just around six minutes or so that we were able to whittle down from Joe. Just a ton of really good stories. The passion is evident. And where we begin with Joe is just asking him what's it like for him having a team come in with that New York Yankees logo ironed on their sleeves rather than being the one in the home clubhouse. Well, you know, you walk in and it's the faces you recognize. The Tommy Phelps who pitched for us uh, 20 years ago. Uh, Darren London, who for 14 years was our trainer. It's just, it, it gives you a warm feeling. You know, it's like friends coming home. When you think back to those days when, when Tommy Phelps and Darren London were your guys versus the enemy, what makes that New York Yankees era stand out? Well, you know, uh, it was the class of the Yankees. It was wonderful. George Steinbrenner's mom lived in Columbus, and he would come and visit her. And suddenly I'd be in the press box and I'd turn around and there's George Steinbrenner. And it's like, you know, everybody, you <laughs> stop goofing off. But he would come in and he loved to talk college football. Uh, he didn't really talk too much baseball with us, but we would sit down and talk about the Purdue Boilermakers and Ohio State and Michigan and we'd have a great time. The Yankees were part of the affiliation here, 1979 to 2006. I mentioned almost three decades and just countless players that have come through the doors, not necessarily here at Huntington Park, but obviously guys that Yankee fans, people listening to these broadcasts would be more than familiar with. So what were some of the highlights when you think back to the great players who came through? Well, you know, uh, you stop and think, Rigetti, Mattingly, Balboni, it was a minor league legend here uh we had jeter we had posada we had uh the core four 
the core four was on our 1995 team, and we really had to play hard the last week of the season not to finish in last place. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> you know, but you know, you look and Jeter was Jeter. We knew Jeter before he was Jeter, if you know what right. I mean. But he made brilliant plays, and everybody would just go, "Whoa!" And you could tell. Uh, Bernie Williams was here, and uh, I can remember we used to have something called Party at the Park every Friday night. We'd have a local band, you know, play after the game or before the game, whichever it happened to be. And he would go out and play with them. Great guitarist. And uh, everybody would just sit there and watch Bernie play. <laughs> when you think about the core four, was it obvious then, as it is in hindsight, what they were destined to be? Well, um, if I would say Pettit, you could just tell the body was there, you know. Uh, he wasn't quite as polished as he was in New York, but uh, he was a kid. Uh, Jeter, you could see. Now, Jeter would make three great plays and then would back him one in the hole and send it 18 rows up in the grandstand. But that's what you do when you're a teenager. Uh, Posada was our regular catcher. And then he, I think it was his leg he broke, maybe an ankle, play at the plate. And he said that made him realize that he took his talent for granted. And he really dedicated him. You could see the difference in that one one year to the next. The one that was a little bit surprising was Mo. He was a starting pitcher here. In fact, I was the official scorer the day he threw the no-hitter. You could just, you just... He had two pitches, basically. and But those two pitches were the best in baseball. When he went up, uh, I got to give Joe Torrey, he, he just worked with him beautifully. Him and Mel Stottlemyre, uh, just admirable. Uh, but, yeah, they, they were something. Uh, they were fun to watch. We're here with Joe Santry, team historian, part of the communications department for the Columbus Clippers, and we're reminiscing about the, the days, the years, nearly 30 years in which the New York Yankees affiliation was here in Columbus. As the Rail Riders come to town, they have Cameron Maben on their roster. You talked about some of the great players that played coming up the ranks as Yankees here in Columbus, but I have to imagine there were some pretty neat rehab appearances for the Clippers as well. Yeah, um, that's one of the fun things we get to do in AAA. Um, Every team gets a few rehabs, and you never know. We had Francisco Lindor earlier this year uh, come back. Uh, But uh, in 2004, we're playing, and in a short span of time, we had the entire Yankee starting pitching rotation pitching for us. We had Mike Mucina. We had Kevin Brown. We had Orlando Hernandez. We had Jose Contreras. And I kept thinking, who's in New York? (laughs) Do they need me? But uh, no, uh, in that same year was when Robinson Cano was a 20-year-old. That was a lot of fun. And it happens every year. And I think it happens more now than when I was young. Uh, But uh, I can remember once uh, uh, I'm walking through to get the lineup out of the uh, clubhouse and we're taking batting practice and there's like four guys hanging around the cage and Frank Howard who was a all-star power hitter and he's from Columbus but he was coaching for us and he yells at me he called me Joe Good Buddy I, he couldn't remember my last name he goes Joe Good Buddy come here I want to introduce you to some of my friends so I hopped the fence and I walked over and on the other side of the batting cage 
It's Don Mattingly, Reggie Jackson, and I'm forgetting somebody, but it was another Yankee legend. And I'm like dumbfounded. He goes, Joe, you're always so talkative. Why aren't you talking? <laughs> it's freaking Reggie Jackson. <laughs> but uh, no, Frank was great. And uh, it's, it's like that whenever the Yankees come to town. And one final question for you here on the pregame show as we get closer and closer to first pitch on a 12.05 day game in Columbus, getaway day, the finale of a three-game set. Is there a, a story? Minor League Baseball is so cute and local and just it feels like there are neighborhood local kind of stories that, that filter in and out of ballparks. Is there is there something that you can pass along that has to do with the steeped history that the Columbus Clippers have here? I was up in our... Uh, restaurant and we have a 130 foot bar with half of its Yankees and uh, there were two young girls uh, college co-eds from Ohio State and they're looking at the bar and going look it's Luke Danes it's Luke Danes now I'm the historian I'm supposed to know everybody who's played here and I don't know a Luke Danes so I thought well they got the wrong name that happens to all of us well, suddenly there's like 20 girls, and they're going crazy like it's Justin Bieber or Elvis or the Beatles or something. And so I, curiosity got the better part of me, so I walked over and I peeked over their shoulder and I go, ladies, this is not Luke Danes. He says, this is Scott Patterson. He was a Yankees pitcher back in the 80s. He pitched for the Clippers. They're going, no, he plays Luke Danes on the Gilmore Girls. I never got a chance to see the Gilmore Girls. So I ran back to the press box and I Googled the Gilmore Girls. Scott Patterson's now a Broadway actor. So, you know, all these players all have great, great stories, even if they're minor career minor leaguers. A big thank you for Joe for giving us all of his time a few weeks back. Plenty of good stories. And that was a fun conversation. That was a fun morning chatting with him out in Ohio. As always, we put a wrap on this episode of the podcast by taking a look around the system. Now, the report from Scranton Wilkesbury last week was a report on Nick Nelson. So rather than doubling up, we just chopped that one off the end. So the report you'll hear this week from Matt Dean in single A with the Charleston River Dogs, Nick Flamia in high A with the Tampa Tarpons, and John Moses in double A with the Trenton Thunder. Without further ado, here's Matt Dean. With this look at the Charleston River Dogs, I'm Matt Dean. After an 11-2 run to start the month of August, Charleston has dropped three straight in their weekend series in Asheville, falling behind to five back of the first-place tourists entering play Sunday. In what's been an otherwise tough weekend for the Dogs, 19-year-old shortstop Oswald Peraza has shined, going 6-for-12, including blasting his first River Dogs home run on Saturday night. With the power starting to come around, one of the most highly touted prospects from the Yankees' 26. 16 class has looked like a complete player. The River Dogs' defensive coach Travis Chapman this week talked about the huge steps forward the teenager has taken since Chapman managed him in the DSL back in 2017. He's really grown up. He's really matured. He's really become a young man and, uh, and a good professional baseball player. Uh, right now he's about an average big league defender at shortstop right now in a very small sample size that we've had him here in Charleston. And uh, you know, he just goes about his daily work. He, he has the thirst, the, the eye of the tiger, if you will, that he wants to get better. He wants to learn details. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's numbers. It doesn't matter whether it's fielding position. It doesn't matter you know, whether it's something you know, mentally communicating, helping his team out. He, uh, he has that kind of it factor. 
Currently riding an eight-game hitting streak, Peraza has hit 271 while reaching base at an over 340 clip in his first 33 games at the Class A level, where he's two and a half years younger than the average position player. With this look at the River Dogs, I'm Matt Dean. With the Tampa Tarpons, I'm Nick Flamia. The Tarpons remain two games back of first place Dunedin after splitting a doubleheader against the Blue Jays on Saturday night. The season series wraps up with another twin bill this afternoon, giving Tampa another chance to gain ground in the standings. Esteban Floria logged a pair of multi-hit games last night, and over his last 12 games has six such games, batting 311 with 11 runs scored, four home runs, 12 RBI, and seven walks in that span. The 21-year-old has homered eight times in 61 games this season, after finishing with six homers in 84 games in all of 2018. Diego Castillo also homered on Saturday, and has homered twice now during his 15-game on-base streak. Over that stretch, the 21-year-old shortstop is batting 345 with eight runs scored and 11 RBI. Catcher Donnie Sands also continues his hot stretch, lining an RBI double in Game 1 on Saturday to extend his hitting streak to nine games. The 23-year-old is batting 333 over his last 13 games. On the mound, Tampa set a new single-game season high with 16 strikeouts in Game 1 of Saturday's Twinville with seven punch-outs apiece from righties Frank Herman and Glenn Otto, followed by two more punch-outs from righty Matt Wivenis. With the Tarpons, I'm Nick Flamia. With the Trenton Thunder, I'm John Moses. This week, the Thunder earned a series victory in Akron and arrived in Reading on Friday night to host the double-A debut for New York's 2017 first-round selection, right-hander Clark Schmidt. With a lengthy recovery from Tommy John's surgery in the rearview mirror, Schmidt showed off the full arsenal on Friday night against the Fightins, according to pitching coach Tim Norton. Yeah, I thought he was really composed, uh, solid three-pitch mix. Everything for me is plus. Uh, good movement on both of his off-speed pitches and uh, good command of his fastball, four and two seams. So really good first start. Uh, I know he gave up some runs there in the second and third inning, but uh, overall really composed, good stuff, pretty impressive. Schmidt figures to be a factor in the Thunder rotation as they push for the postseason, something that excites Norton as he looks ahead to what Schmidt can do down the stretch of the campaign. Getting his confidence back, because sitting on the shelf for that long is tough. I mean, you feel like you, you've been out of the competitive nature of just getting after it. So uh, it looks like that's what he's doing. Uh, and just kind of end the season knowing that, boy, I'm not far away. You know, I just need to keep grinding, keep getting after it, and, uh, and uh, stay healthy. With the Thunder, I'm John Moses. And now that will officially put a wrap on this week's episode of A Call Away. Thank you so much for hanging out and enjoying this week's episode. Give it a like, a review, share it on social media. Whatever you do, just get the word out there. We have so much fun across the Pinstripe Alley Podcast Network getting all these podcasts out to you each and every week. And if you're a Yankees fan, I'm sure you know some Yankee fans. So turn them on to this and spread the word. Madam Giardino, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at... Adam Giardino, G-I-A-R-D-I-N-O. And you can catch every Rail Riders baseball game beginning 30 minutes before first pitch with pregame coverage. All the games can be heard on the Rail Riders radio network, the TuneIn radio app, and on the MILB first pitch app as well. If you don't tune in to a radio broadcast this week, I feel sorry for you, but we will talk to you all again next week on A Call Away.